Welcome to Season 3 of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis with my co-host Ben Pronk. G'day, Ben. Hello, Tim. Ben, today we have Christian Boo Bacusis, former Air Force fighter pilot. Yeah, we were reflecting, in fact, last time we spoke to a fighter pilot, we were reflecting that we like speaking to fighter pilots. We've had a number on the show, and I think it's really interesting seeing um, the perspective they bring, and particularly the fact that they've all gone into very different things, and Boo's no exception. He's had a, a really pretty interesting career post um, Air Force. Yeah, he flew fighters for 11 years and then got out of that and went to Afghanistan to start a consulting practice, sold that, moved into property development. And a few other things in between to land where he is now as a consultant with Afterburner. Yeah, so they talk um, to, or they work with companies all across the world and some really big names that uh, we'd all heard of. And they bring some of the military perspectives in planning, but in particularly in this art of the debrief um, to these corporate clients. And we're going to talk with Boo about what constitutes a good debrief how it's done, and why potentially people don't do it, particularly those with a bit of ego. Our perennial question on ego and fighter pilots. Yeah, it seems to be answered in the negative every time. We (laughs) we need to find an actual maverick or, or Iceman in the flesh. Well, let's find out about this maverick in the flesh. Did you just... Maverick in the flesh. You you want you want to find out about a maverick in the flesh. <laughs> Let's get on with the show. <laughs> Have you been to India? 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 Well, you better get some of it, India. Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis, as always, sometimes regretfully, with my co-host Ben Pronk. G'day, Ben. G'day, Tim. Now, if you were a fighter pilot, what Mm -hmm. would your call sign be? That's a great question. I don't even know if you give yourself your own handle, do you? Well, we, we touched on that previously, but we'll come back to it with our guest this week. I reckon, following the Australian nomenclature pattern, it'd just be a variation on your theme name. I reckon you'd be Kurt. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that might be completely appropriate in the dictionary definition. Well, why don't we talk to an expert? This week's guest is Christian Boo Bacusis, who is just that, an ex-Australian F-18 pilot. And um, we were trying to work out how many fighter pilots we've had on our podcast. But Boo's got a pretty interesting sort of backstory and and I think a really interesting front story. The stuff he's doing now is pretty amazing and and quite different to anyone we've spoken to. Well, Boo, welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast via Zoom. Thanks for having me, Kurt. uh... (laughs) (laughs) What would I be? Just prompt. (laughs) 
Oh, no, mate, you'd be you'd you'd, you'd have you'd, you'd have a negative one, mate. You'd be like Pronker or something like I that. I mean, whatever happened to Maverick and Iceman and I mean, dare I say it, Goose, but Jester and you know, Viper? A, you know, in the did you ever meet the Royal Australian Air Force fighter pilot called Maverick? No. Well, I met Pete Mitchell through the Australian Defence Force Academy. And, um, you know, like every single male in my vintage, I'd wanted to be a fighter pilot after we saw Top Gun at a very impressionable age. And then getting to ADFA, he was a year ahead of me. We did a bit of triathlon together. This guy, Pete Mitchell, looked the part, was the part, Mm. and this is the fighter pilot. And he's, he's, I think he's still in as a bloody two-star or something. He's he's had an amazing career. uh, He's like the... um the Scandinavian version of Tom Cruise. You <laughs> it's know? like the Iceman looking. <laughs> <laughs> Just completely, completely mixed up. And we have a, we did have an Iceman in there as well. So, um, but, by, but by and large, mate, you, you know, we're pretty lazy when it comes to, um, call signs, you know, booze just short for Bacusa. So pretty imaginative there. Yeah, seemingly um, so. I mean, Tim Robertson, his, his handle was Robbo. I, I mean, shout out to the fighter pilot community. Improve yeah. it. It's terrible. <laughs> I mean, we want something that's a little bit stickier. Although you can go too far. We used to work with the Singaporean Special Forces, and so they all gave themselves nicknames, and they were like Rambo and Snake and Serpent and Dagger. <laughs> so you can you can probably take it a bit far. They sound like the Revolutionary United Front, the anti-government group in Sierra Leone, who all had yeah, you, nicknames you, like that, Captain Blood the, and Lieutenant Rambo and Corporal Death. <laughs> The ties in the Singaporean were a bit like that as well. Yeah, you'd be up against lightning and thunder and Thor. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. hey, yeah, good good dudes, good dudes to, to share yeah, a drink with. Likewise. Well, Boo, was it yeah, the so, was it the inspiration of the 1986 movie Top Gun that saw you enter the Royal Australian Air Force? Tell us that. Oh, look, story. I think for me it was it was fueled to the fire. For I I connected with wanting to be a fighter pilot you know, back in the day when they used to have air shows a couple of times a year and they didn't have any rules and you'd have aircraft, you know, almost <laughs> supersonic coming from behind you, uh, terrifying you, you know. I, uh, my, my, my first experience at an air show was my dad had a big old Fairlane uh, and we went out to, to Amberley. I lived in Brisbane. Uh, and we, we also lived on the fly path, so we saw lots of F-111s flying over. So for me, F-111 was the duck's guts. And we, we go to this air show and... You know, the aircraft are taxing back and forward. The Mirage pilots, the F-11 pilots are waving at the crowd and being a six-year-old, you're like, oh, they're just waving at me. So, yeah. really, you know, they're saying, yep, you're next, mate. Destined uh, for greatness. This, this all went on. And then and then at the end of the show, was like the old Huey just came out of stage left. It was like, blah, 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 blah. And uh, you look over there, it's like I see this white car underneath and it gets closer and closer. I'm like, I'm like, that's Dad's feeling. <laughs> Dad's car going under the... Under the Iroquois, it's like bum, 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 comes into the front of the crowd and on the loudspeakers going, with the owner of, you know, 6QL492, you parked illegally, we've moved your vehicle, can you come and come? I'm like, yeah, Dad, you've got to go and talk to the guys, they've got your car. And Dad's just sort of laughing and they're like, look, if you don't collect your vehicle immediately, uh, we'll have to release it. And uh, then they yeah, release the car and it smashes in front of everyone. I'm like, oh! That's Dad's car. Getting home. I'm like freaking out. Um, the old man thought it was hilarious, and, uh, and then we're like, we're, then he goes, "No, nah, no, nah, it's just a joke, mate." And we're we're driving home, and as we're driving home from Amberley, it's like, blah, 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 blah. it's Iroquois coming up the road behind us, mate. I was, I was like a bull in the bottom of the car. <laughs> I think, you know, I think they they talk about having that uh, 
visceral experience to reinforce memory. Mm. Um, and, and I think for me that that was it. I couldn't be anything else other than that. And then when um, I was always the weird kid at school, you know, who wanted to be a fighter pilot. I go to my school reunions and they're like, you're the dude that like wanted to be the fighter pilot like from year five and you you did it. It's like, you're the weird dude. Um, so when Top Gun came out, mate, I was just, you know, I was, I was in my element. I thought I was the expert explaining it to everyone. Uh, did did you have uh, the, the Ray-Ban aviators as a, as a primary oh, school kid? Mate, yeah, but because... Because we were just, you know, lower middle class, had to have them in the case so they didn't get scratched, <laughs> you know, anything like that. So, um, so yeah, but you know, it was. I think after that, it was just like hell, hell yeah. But when I when I um when I left school, I still I applied to everything, mate, army, navy, uh, air force. I didn't really care. I just wanted to fly, um, you know, and I was lucky. I got accepted by all of them, pro- probably for my enthusiasm more than anything else. But it's interesting now because I do a lot of work on deep performance. Um, and, and, and for me, deep performance is the journey beyond high performance, you know, that sustainable, enduring um, uh, life that is 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 fulfilling. And, and and really, you don't have these massive peaks that you never bounce back from. Uh, and that deep performance, I think, that uh, is connecting to that purpose. And, you know, I, I work with a lot of people and know a lot of people that just have no sense of purpose. Or, or mm. they say, oh, boo, you know, what what is my purpose? And it's like, well, I don't know. You, you you know do something that you don't like doing and if you feel good afterwards that's purpose um so so i think having purpose from a very young age uh and being able to live to that purpose you know work work extra hard it was just really binary you, you you're going to do it or you're not so do everything you can um it was was great uh, and, it, and it set me up for life i think just having that steely-eyed determination to to get that one thing done talk about pilot's course so we've had tim robbo who talked about crying in the toilet cubicle on pilot's course and and they completely miss the the late nights the hard times the the crying in toilet cubicles during (laughs) fighter course at the other end of the scale we've had maddie hall who said yeah i kind of had to work pretty hard but ducks it you know just ducks pilot's course as I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you were ducks on your pilot's course, your Hornet conversion, your fighter combat instructor course. You were the 1997 Fighter Pilot of the Year, which is a pretty cool title, I reckon. Um, <laughs> and you, you also got a, a Chief of Air Force commendation for your, your performance as a Chief Instructor on the, the Fighter Combat Instructor course. Um, hard work, talent, luck, you know, what, what's the, the mixture that, that gives you such a, a stellar run? Um, I would say that there's, there's, um, there is some natural ability in my flying. Um, mm. you know, I'd, you'd, you'd, you'd be crazy to say that I'm, uh, I haven't got ability there, but, mm-hmm. um, it's definitely hard work as well. What's it like? Matty took determination to the next level. Yeah. Well, that's right. He's the, he'll be the undefeated world champion of Red Bull air racing, won't he? Cause they've now discontinued, yeah. discontinued that series. But what's, that what's fighter pilot like if... Uh, if people were thinking about wanting to join the Air Force and wanting to be a fighter pilot, coming back to that visceral feeling, what's it feel like? What's a day in the life of a fighter pilot look like? It sounds very glamorous. Well, Plus you get cool nicknames it's like, like Top Gun, which was pretty disappointing <laughs> uh, when you realise how much hard work it is. Um, it's and, and there's like heaps of rules, so you can't do any of the stuff that, that look like uh, fun. Uh, I, you know, I, I do a bit of... Um, 
uh, speaking at universities, uh, aviation courses to try and motivate uh, kids to you know, get excited about the military instead of becoming an airline pilot. And one of the saddest things about it is, like, I never had any, I never thought I couldn't be a fighter pilot. I just thought, yep, I'll, I'm going to be one. But mm. so many kids are like, oh, I could never do that. And it's like, well, trust me, I, I repeated year 12. I barely got through the second time. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I, I have adult, I, I diagnosed as an adult with ADHD. Like, if I can get through it, anyone can get through it. So my first, my, my um, advice to them is it's it's the best thing you'll ever do in your life. Not only do you learn a lot about flying, you just learn a lot about problem solving and and being uh, a useful uh, human being, you know, and uh, you also get to stay in hotels when you deploy and it's a uh, slightly... <laughs> don't rub it in. Don't rub it in. ...way of, of uh, executing warfare. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what do we get? At best, a hanger. Yeah, yeah, that's quite true. <laughs> Although you probably would have had a fighter jet in there periodically. Yeah, yeah. And what's the kind of sleeping bag, uh, fellas? Uh, <laughs> yeah, nothing, nothing but the you know the sort of beautiful quilts. Mm. Yeah. So no, that's right, mate. Uh, you, goose and duck down, not 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 just duck. It's um, got to be quality. Uh, but pilot's course itself is. Um, Look, I think the whole thing is just, it's about 400 missions that you fly from the first one till when you graduate off a Hornet, 400 odd missions. Uh, every one of those, you know, is assessed. Um, and it's just, every one is just an incremental, incrementally more complex piece. Uh, and as you guys would know, it's uh, military training 101, you know, just gradually stretch the rubber band and, and, and certain people will break and others will get through. And I think we had... Uh, we had uh, 35 odd start our pilots course and around 20 got through and then of that 20 about six ended up on on fast jets uh so it's um yeah i i remember this this it's like everything goes well on pilots course and then you just have one bad trip and it's like you you literally it's like shit i've just invested like a year and within 24 hours this could just be over mm. um so it's it's really uh I think that the, the the trait in fighter pilots is that you, that self confidence that you can bounce back from that, um, and I think that the bit about it being your whole life's dream as well, yeah, you know, it's like oh the thing you always wanted when you were six. Well, if you don't do a better job tomorrow, that's gone, mate. Um, and I've I had to probably two of those uh, during my training career. Uh, so it's yeah, it was. And oh look, I was a dick, mate. You know, I was nineteen. I mean, I had no, I had personality zero. Hmm. Just absolute hardcore shaved head do every possible thing in my power to become a fighter pilot so my other my other kind of suggestion would be just you just got to be you have no relationships nothing out you just got to be all about you for about three years and then you can re-engage with life after that yeah. but again i was a very smart so maybe the smarter ones could balance it a bit more. balance Tell us, um, within the SAS regiment, the selection and the training process, it's sort of seen something of an evolution and uh, I guess more clearly distinguishing between which bits are about selection and which bits are about training and, and improving people. How does that work in the fighter or in the in pilot's course? I mean, there's obviously a selection component because you're, you're scrubbing people as they go, but um, at the same time, they're learning a new skill and, you know, how do, how do you sort of interweave those selection versus training aspects of that, that pilot continuum? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, oh, I, I, I use the word softened, it, but it's just changed a bit more. I think there's a bit more time given. Uh, they used to say when I went through pilot's course, 
you know, any monkey can fly, but we've got to teach a monkey to fly in nine months. Uh, and that's the key. It's the time. That was the the differentiator. Uh, and the, I mean, the, when I went through, it used to be uh, they'd push you and push you and push you until you uh, until you your situational awareness was gone. You're completely overwhelmed. And and the the trigger there was there's always you always come back to hey just forget everything and fly the airplane don't hit the ground right and as long <laughs> as you could do that and be safe you got through whereas uh, others would just get caught up in the moment and do something dangerous uh, so they deliberately push you so you you would perform uh, and then they'd push you into pass fail so they'd push push you to the point where you, you're actually not going to perform the mission anymore but you've got to jump into being safe. Mm. So that's that was I guess how they selected them, and no doubt it's it's no different uh, to to selection in terms of you just got to keep away from the microscope. You just got to be the grey man. <laughs> just, just don't get anyone's attention because the minute you're on the microscope, then it becomes a bit tough. Like it's you know the the way you shuffle down the corridor is analysed. Yeah. How yeah. does a fighter fighter pilot be the grey man? I've never seen a grey fighter pilot. Oh, it's just a theory, mate. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, out of out of pilot school and into a squadron, can you talk about life in the squadron? Yeah, there's a. You guys need. You do need to um, interview Serge if you get a chance. If if, if he comes out of hiding from the UN, I was going to say. I think <laughs> we're in a long list, a long line of people who want to interview Serge, aren't we? <laughs> But uh, you know, he wrote a book. He wrote he wrote the book about it. It was pretty good and, and pretty accurate. I'll never forget. I had in my dining room one night, and Serge came around for dinner, and uh, they're looking at each other, recognizing each other, but couldn't quite place it. And it was that moment of of clarity when they realized they got into a blue in, in Singapore uh, <laughs> when we were all deployed over there once. Um, the um, squadron life is. Oh, look, it's like anything, I think. You, you probably reflect on it a bit more favourably than it was at the time. Um, I think it was just, again, it was it was pretty intense. And I think was, there was an era of fire. I think the Hornet guys were really lucky because we got to fly an aircraft that was pretty challenging to fly and use. Uh, it wasn't super, you know, it was computerised, but not a supercomputer like the new ones. Um, I think they got, I didn't get to deploy, which is part of my uh, life choice to go to Afghanistan after I got out, but uh, a lot of the guys did get to deploy, so it was a, a got some good op tours in. Uh, so it was, you know, it was a, it was a really rewarding job, but it was a bit flying clubby when I went through, and then I went on exchange to the UK, and that for me was a bit more hardcore, a bit more operational. Uh, what, but, what were you flying yeah. in the UK? Tornadoes. Yeah, tornadoes over there. Um, out of but interest, the, how do they compare? Is it a, a comparable aircraft? Or I'd always sort of viewed the tornadoes as a little more agricultural for some reason. Yeah, because it is. <laughs> that might be the reason. <laughs> yeah, look, it's the, it's, it's the, um, a bit like a Range Rover. You know, back in the day, Brits are very engineering-led, whereas Americans are very operations-led. So the, the Hornet was designed for a Marine to fly, uh, the tornado was designed for engineers to think of the most complex way they could put all the buttons in the cockpit. So it was that that was really interesting. Uh, but it was ama- it was amazingly fast. And you know, when everyone was in Iraq, me and every other exchange guy was down on the, defending the Falkland Islands, which was a, which was a bit of a hoot. Uh, so it was a lot. It was, it was a lot of fun. And living in Europe was was fantastic. Uh, a, a big change. But squadron life, I think, and you you would know this as well. It's you you miss it. Because there's no other environment like that. I, I call it the 
the say do gap, right? So the gap between what people say they're going to do and what they do is really, really small. Uh, and when I left the military, that's what I missed the most. The fact that, you know, most people are full of shit. Uh, and mo- most people don't really know what they want or there's not there's none of that assurance um like every single thing that happened in a fighter squadron was just synchronized beautifully everything just worked you your, your missions were always you know successful it, it was just a it was hard work but it, it was like you even when you had a bad day you ended up having a good day you learned something valuable from it so so i missed that but hell it was hard work it was it was intense and Again, I think our generation, and Robbo might say it as well, um, and and Huey would definitely was. There's a lot of issues with burnout. Um, you, know, you in a single seat squadron, you you've only got you know, 15 guys to do all the work, and that not just flying, all the other stuff you have to do as an officer as well. So you just you're, you're working six days a week, um, and and no one ever says good job. That's not the culture. You, you just a good a great job is your job and if you don't do it you'll get told talk to me boo about that say do gap i i find that really interesting coming out of the military and seeing that there is that disconnect in a lot of corporate environments and i've been trying to sort of work out what underpins that? And I used to think, you know, there's this impression of the military is all this discipline and you get yelled at and there's all these rules. And, and I never really felt that was the case. I think it was a lot more liberal um, working in, in the, the military than people probably think outside. But there is this kind of underpinning consequence if you don't do what you're going to say, either someone will get hurt or you'll end up marching around in a square on a on a weekend, you know, there, there's that disciplinary side as well. It, that's about as close as I can come to, to understanding why it is that say-do gap is, is so much smaller in the military than it is in other places. Have you got any reflections on that? Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely consequence-led. I'm a big believer in uh, people are, are, are driven by consequence. and a con- It could be a, a positive consequence or a negative mm. consequence, but there's a, there's a fail reward um, motivator there. I think that's the intrinsic motivator. Uh, the extrinsic piece is that uh, uniquely to Australia, it's that mateship. And and this is the thing I constant like I've been uh, consulting in the corporate world for six years on strategy to execution. And the, the thing I say the most is it's we're not we're not that regimented. We're, mm. we're not like we're not this hugely disciplined. Yeah, everyone do what you're told. We're the opposite actually. We're, we're just very logical. And people, as long as you're logical, uh, we'll get it done. And if you're a dick, we'll figure a way to do it and work around you. I mean, because mm-hmm. we understand the consequence. So, yeah, discipline is good. And, and I think that's one of the ma- fantastic traits you get from the military is you know that it's not going to get done with, with without hard work and there's a lot of shitty little jobs you got to do. So you just do it because when you actually get it done, it feels good. Yeah. So it's yeah, I, I think that's uh, it's unique, and I think I don't know. I, I, this is why I think veterans have trouble getting work um, and find the transition so difficult. Is 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 finding it hard to deal with that 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 big say do gap, and and that most people they they talk about doing things, but it's it's talk. It, it's not it's not actually going to get done. 
um, and they don't care. They don't, they don't have the same care about the job. Yeah. I, I, was, I was reading a really interesting Gallup poll uh, a couple of weeks ago, and that was a high-performance survey where they where they got a whole, you know, whole bunch of companies, as Gallup does, to poll uh, their thoughts on high performance. And, and what they found was 10% of an organisation is, is probably naturally high-performing. Uh, uh, the next 20% is can be, but they require development. But under that, it doesn't matter how much you invest, you're never going to get a high-performance mindset, right? So 70% of the organisation. And the, and the lower 50, 50% is completely passive. Mm. Uh, so that so when you look at that um, and you and you look at just about everyone that comes out of the military has a has a high performing mindset relative to uh, organizationally I mean like at mm. scale it's, it's more of a uh, and that I think it's deep performance I've moved away from high performance mm. I think it's even in the military there's high performance elements and then there's supporting elements but they're better at supporting than the supporting elements in yeah you know, I, I run workshops and I've, I've worked, done workshops where people actively go out of their way to derail and sabotage the people they work with to make them look bad in, mm. in a forum where everyone can see it. Mm. Uh, you know, um, you know, we're, we're a bit more discreet about it that in the military. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, so I think it's, yeah, I think it's, um, I think, I think those, those traits of discipline, but I, I think the biggest thing we learn in the military is logic. I think we're very logical about problem solving. Uh, you mentioned valuable learnings, quote unquote. Now, in our book, we talk about capturing valuable learnings and lessons that in the SAS regiment we learnt from fighter pilots like Tim Robbo Robertson. Can you talk about how debriefing works in the squadron, how it's conducted and the importance of it, Boo? Yeah, I mean, I, I never appreciated how important debriefing was till I reconnected. Like, you know, I, 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 have, I operate uh, as a partner in a global group called Afterburner, which is a whole bunch of fighter pilots that work in, in two business, you know, like Michael Jordan and Michael Dell, Microsoft, Google, you know, huge businesses in the US. Uh, and the biggest takeaway for everyone is debriefing, coming in and teaching organizations to debrief. I I've, I've would have done a thousand debriefs in the last six years. And when you have one, people are like, ah, oh, that's the reason why we're not performing, right? Oh, that's great. Thanks. Can you come and teach us some more? So I think I think debriefing. Oh, I think debriefing was the only reason I managed to be successful as an entrepreneur. Just you know, I did. I've, I've done. I built a humanitarian projects business from from the ground up. It's that's the second biggest in the world today. I mean, I sold out of it after three years. CTG Global uh, built a hotel across the road from where you are now. Never been done before. It volumetric prefabricated modular construction. So the whole thing was built in a factory, moved into publishing, had bought a, a magazine that used that had been in Australia for 40 years, the aviation magazine that everyone read and completely converted that to a digital platform and launched a digital um, global magazine that, that I managed to sell to a publishing company here. And I think the ability to problem solve and go, you know what, because every one of those is a completely different lane, but you just start with, I think that this can be done better. I think humanitarian projects can be done better. I think we could build a hotel better. I think that we could do better than a paper magazine. And when you start thinking that way, that's all debriefing. You lead with debriefing. What are we trying to do? Why Why are we here? Why is there a gap? And that's I call that the, I've got the say-do gap and then the want-plan-do. 
yeah, the gap between what you want to do, what you plan to do, and what you actually do. Mm. Uh, and and debriefing is what closes the gap. It brings your wants down. It, it, it manages expectations, which, which means we are more realistic about what we want. Uh, we plan better with more clarity, which means we do more. So we bring want down and do up, and we have this really tight want, plan, do gap. Uh, so, so debriefing is just that. What am I trying to do? What's actually happening? Why is it happening? What am I going to do about it tomorrow? Uh, and uh, you, you, most organizations probably work on a quarterly or six-monthly uh, review cycle, which is typically uh, why did every, everyone in the organization stuffed up uh, zero accountability, whereas debriefing is very personal. It's like, okay, well, you know, I stuffed up. Uh, here, here's what I did. And but here's what I've learned about it. And a, a big part of teaching debriefing in organizations is, is teaching people, you know what? The fact you made a mistake, everyone knows. So you, to not own up to it or otherwise, forget about it. So turn yourself into a superhero, debrief and figure out a solution for it because then you, then you actually look like you're a legend because mm. you've just tried something, you've innovated, and all of a sudden you've got this new thing. And if there's one thing business loves, it's new stuff. Oh, let's get something new to fix today's problem because then we don't have to be disciplined. We don't have to worry about fixing up our procedures and standards. We don't have to do all the basic stuff. We just keep buying new shiny stuff. And I, you know, I work with, you know, the biggest company in Australia um, and the biggest bank. And when you look at the complexity that's introduced as a result of human nature, as opposed to what you actually need, it's it's mind blowing. It's all human based decisions. It's, everyone thinks it's money and finance and business cases. It's just people's opinions and ideas they get turned into billions of dollars worth of spin a bit about this idea of accountability and in particular how it can clash with ego. Now, one of the things we'd observed, Tim mentioned we'd uh, had a number of fighter pilots come into the unit and we thought uh, that the, I guess, perspectives they brought from the aviation debriefing process were, were really beneficial to us. And one in particular was the ability to look at um, incidents particularly uh, through a re- relatively impartial lens, you know, this idea of being a, a blame-free, a rank-free sort of environment in an aviation debrief. Can you talk to sort of your observations on the importance of that and, and how you can potentially dethatch the ego out of these kind of discussions to make them more impartial and productive? Yeah, well, I think the interesting thing about a fighter pilot is you you haven't quite got the self-awareness yet when you start training uh, so they just make you do it they just teach it so it's just this is the process and from the very first mission you fly it's debriefed and it's like okay and you've got to self-diagnose because that's how they know you're, you're you're the kind of pilot that can stay ahead of the learning curve if you have to be told what to do all the time you're not going to hack it right so you're just like okay um and, and they they you're set up for success. Like there's set parameters that you have to achieve and then you debrief against them. It's not just a, hey, how'd you go, mate? How do you feel you went there? It's like, mm. how did you go against this outcome, against this outcome and against this outcome? And and I'm a big believer in the rule of threes, right? Which is only ever do three things at once. The most important thing, uh, the next best thing and the third thing if you've got time. Um, so really it's doing one thing. And 
if you're constantly just doing one thing at a time, you'll find out that, that you'll get 10 things done. Um, we, we make the mistake of doing 10 things at once. So debriefing also allows you to prioritize what is the one thing I should be doing right now. Mm. Uh, so it's a really it's a really powerful tool. Uh, ego for me, I actually uh, would be the last person on the planet at the age of 32 to go to a spiritual healer. But one of my best friends said, you need to speak to this guy because he he's like the whisperer with NRL players. And you need to just have a chat with him. And, and that's the first time I'd ever heard of the concept of, you know, post-ego and ego not being a big ego, just just putting yourself at the, at, at, at the, at the center of all your decision-making. And literally from that day forward, life became so easy because all of that language, I deserve this, I need more respect, I think, you just, you take that word I out of decision-making and it just becomes easy. Like it's... Yeah, you just do stuff and stuff goes well, stuff doesn't. But as long as the the, the main line of advance is is positive, um, that's that's the outcome that you want. But it's 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 amazing how hard it is to, to instill that into into coming. You, you you deliver a presentation, you do a training program, and you run you run a, a debrief. And the first thing everyone says, oh, okay, so what do we need to do? What did you learn? What did you learn from the debrief? I learned that the organisation is bad at this. It's like, no, no, no. It's the, who's the organization? It's just a, it's just a made up thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so deep, I, I think debriefing is the most powerful thing in, in the planet. And, and I, do you know the organization that has made billions out of debriefing yeah. is Scientology. A Scientology audit is a personal debrief. <laughs> and they have built an entire multi billion dollar product on a spaceman. Uh, being in charge of the organization because through that debriefing process, they discover deeply personal uh, issues for people and why they're not getting where they want to in life. Mm. It, it's it's the audit is a debrief. So if someone's talking to you and saying, what are your problems? What, uh, have you And very confronting, uh, you know, Hall of Mirrors stuff, and then they're giving you solutions. It's very hard not to, very hard not to buy into that culture. Mm. So you know, that, that's... That's what I try and do in, in coaching teams inside big organizations is yeah, you know, stick with this for three months and, and watch the magic happen. And, and when you do get that run at it and you 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 can work with it, it's about 90 days. It's very, very cool. It, it's so cool. I sold all of my businesses and completely got out of being a, a business person to become a speaker and coach on debriefing because it's so rewarding mm. when you see people achieve these things that they never thought possible. And what about the fine line between ego and self-efficacy? So you mentioned right at the start when you're talking about pilot's course that it is a confidence game. You you want to have that self-belief. Um, and I, I find it really interesting looking at how that sort of, or at what point that tips into ego and becomes counterproductive. Clearly, we don't want to rob self-efficacy. We don't want to rob people's confidence in themselves. Um, so have you got any reflections on, on where that line might be and particularly how the debrief process can be tailored to ensure we're not, uh, I guess, beating ourselves up or, um, or reflecting negatively all the time on ourselves? No, it's a good point. And I think, the again, uh, the Air Force was was very smart in how they did this because debriefing is it's called the bathtub. So you start positive and go, hey, here's what you did some really cool things. Um, or you, you say, so how did that go? Oh, that went well. We, we achieved one and two. How did three go? Well, not so good. So I'm down in the bathtub now. <laughs> I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking. And that you, you, 
you come out of the bathtub when you go, well, that was a great debrief. Do you see how if you do what we've just learned there tomorrow, your performance mm. is going to be better? Yeah, good job, mate. Off you go. So it's it's a debriefing is a very positive experience. PIRs, reviews, all the other types of reviews are not because it is negative. And it's the other problem with it, it's very subjective. And when something's subjective, your ego is is like a, a moth to the flame. Uh, when, when you're sitting there and someone's debriefing your performance, but it's not against a, an objective outcome, it's just a personal beating. It's and even in in you know in the fighter pilot world, it, debriefing is an art. Some some guys were really really good at it, uh, and some guys weren't. It was just a negative experience. So, um, yeah, and I and I only learned all this stuff in hindsight. At the time when I was in, I never thought about it. I just mm. did it. But now I spend a lot of time reflecting on that. Um, and and you're right. There's a if you don't have the bathtub, then it is it, it does affect your uh, your self confidence. But I also believe there's a ego transition we have in life. I think you know yeah. tribal culture. We're supposed to have egos in our twenty. We're supposed to be indestructible and, and idiots. As uh, you know, that's kind of what we do because we've got to run around, do all the hunting, do all the stuff that needs to be done, have some kids. At, you know, if you if you thought about all that stuff, you wouldn't do it, right? I wouldn't do it now if I had a choice. Um, so it's it, you know, I think I think it, I think we're graduating to a post post ego world, and I think nature's done an amazing job of 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 creating us and giving us our wisdom at the end, not at the start, because a lot of wise people wouldn't do the stuff that needs to get done when you're when you're a young person. Let's cross That's, over. Yeah, I think it, it goes a journey, mate. At the mm. end of the day, I, I don't think, and I don't think you can ever tell anyone how to do ego. They just something's going to happen, and they're going to get lost, and they're going to figure it out. And it's like, hey, remove yourself from the situation. Ah, I feel better now. Yeah, and perhaps just to be aware of it, to be aware that you are egoic at times, is yeah, is ample <laughs> in itself. I think I think so. I do, and. I don't even like the word anymore because when I have conversations with people about ego, they're like, I don't have a big ego. I say, I'm not saying you have a, you don't, I'm not saying you have a big ego, but what you, the conversation you're having right now is all about you. you. You're worried about yourself, how you're perceived, you know, and that's what leads to poor self-confidence and self-worth. When you invest yourself personally in your professional outcomes and a great bit of advice I got from someone was, um, was you know, you, you've got to treat everything as a bit of a game. Like it's because you've got no control over any of it. You, you just you can influence, but you don't, can't control. So don't don't get too vested in the outcomes. Uh, and and the other thing I fundamentally believe is give yourself enough time, and you'll you'll as long as you're physically capable and you don't have anything. You know, if if, if it's just an emotional, if it's just a mental thing, you'll you'll get there eventually. You you always will. Um, just. What do they say? It's not. It's not over till it's over. All right. There's some sort of. Or words. It's not. Anyway. Well, let's cross the threshold into 
your business life. Can you tell us a little bit about Afterburner? How did it start and, and what do you do inside the business? Yeah, so my I transitioned. So I was medically discharged. Uh, I, I had a lot of issues with pain when I was flying, but um, I love flying so much I didn't really want to talk about it with anyone. I just medicated, uh, self-medicated. And um, at, at a point that I couldn't do it anymore, uh, I was actually in the UK and my head just, my neck just stopped working. I just got stuck with my head looking out the right-hand side of the cockpit on a mission. I had to sort of fly back sideways uh, to get back on deck. Um at which point I thought, okay, I need to see someone about that. So I was diagnosed. It's a, it's a condition that's really prevalent in men primarily. It's called ankylosing spondylitis. It's a like a, a form of arthritis. It just erodes your spine and fuses it together. Uh, so I knew that I would never uh, probably ever fly again. Uh, so I had to do something else. And entrepreneurialism was really the only thing when I when I turned the dial up on and, and, and binged into Google eventually, it was the thing that looked a bit like being a fighter pilot in the business world. Uh, and uh, like yourselves, you know, I was like, well, I've got one trade flying fighter jets, which isn't transferable. Mm. Uh, I reckon if I go to Iraq or Afghanistan, someone's going to need me to do something. Uh, and me and a mate, yeah, we just jumped on a, on a flight and, and went to Kabul and uh, rustled up a gig. Uh, and on the back of that, you know, we grew this company called CTG, um, we, we created the first mortuary service out of Afghanistan. So we were the, we built a massive repatriation uh, ability. We sold that to a company called RMSI uh, that went on to bigger and better things. Um, yeah, so grew that, sold that to a multinational, uh, didn't make, again, made some egoistic decisions, poor decisions there that, that ended up losing a multi-hundreds of millions of dollars company to a uh, yeah. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> uh, good, um, good debrief. So that, didn't, that didn't go too well. Uh, but you know, it was it was all part of the journey. It, it it taught me that I just didn't want to play that game. I didn't want to play the the gazillionaire um, offshore living in you know Cyprus or Jersey or you know playing that game. And, and you would have seen the game, right? You guys would be well versed with it. I just. I just was there and I just thought, this is just a world full of fuckwits, you know? Like I just these guys, there's nothing to these people. They are they are straw men and, and mm. there's really nothing to aspire to here. So um I quite happily uh, just moved into property development from there. Uh and it, it, and uh, I remember watching in TV when I was in England, watching this um show about building houses out of shipping containers, and I was in an in Papua New Guinea at the time trying to build a hotel. Uh, for Exxon that was going to be gas project there uh, and we got all the way to the damn papers in the bank at ANZ fully funded we got uh, managed to convince the um, the World Bank to stump up 60% of the money it was all good to go and then, uh, and then the, the builder and Exxon just pulled out on the day uh, Exxon decided they wanted to build in um, their own compound and and, and uh, the builder decided well on that basis we're not going to build it we're going to go back to back to Brisbane so but again, everything's a, everything's a learning experience. So the ability to build things out of big boxes, we were approached by an architect in Perth, and 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 we did. We got to build a, you know, a seventeen-story building in eleven weeks, which is a record. Um, and, and the whole project only took eleven months. I think we had five drawdowns from a bank, and you normally have like thirteen and fifteen. So, so that was pretty cool. Uh, and, and it was then when I finished that hotel, I was sort of just kind of wondering. I felt like I wanted to become a, like a bit of a mentor or a coach. Uh, and I wasn't really sure how to do it. And, and a mate, Phil, who was running um, the, this company called Afterburner, which I didn't know much about. I just 
gave him a ring and I said, look, mate, I don't really have much to do. Uh, do you want me to help you? I'll help you grow the business. What do you think? And he's like, oh, mate, I, good timing. I literally just decided to go back and be a fighter pilot again. He's, and he's flying F-35s now. Um, so I took it over and I flew to America. And, and when I went to America um, to meet the guys that founded it 25 years ago, a guy called Jim Murphy, they, I went to America and, and there was this event that had 4,000 people at it. And Afterburner was doing this program for like 4,000 people and then 200 of the, of the senior leaders. And, and I watched this thing with dudes in flying suits and someone, they were telling the story about how you can use fighter pilot knowledge in business. And I was like, <laughs> synapses going off everywhere. And I thought, wow, A, that was, was super professional. B, yeah, it was VMware, like one of the biggest companies in the world. And the impact that it made and the, and the fact that they still there five years later um, and, and the, the, you know, they've worked with 60% of the Fortune 500. Uh, and, and this debriefing thing just it w- was amazing. And I just got caught up in the energy. I'm like, hell yeah, let's, let's do this. So uh, I, I, I bought the uh, license to use uh, to, to represent them here in, uh, in Australia and up into Asia. Um, wrote a book about my experience uh, as an entrepreneur, co-authored that with Murph. And uh, yeah, just just been running around on stage in a, in my flying suit, which is starting to you know get holes in the ass. Um, <laughs> just re- reliving my you know former former glory days. Um, but it's it's just so you, you guys would see it too. I mean, people um, people generally respect uh, the the fact that someone's been in service, uh, and you you develop trust very quickly. It's very hard to translate into like ongoing work because people like we don't want some random dude in a flying suit in the office. Uh, <laughs> so this is kind of a you know I've, I've moved into a sort of a white label, just sort of helping consult you know not in flying suit stuff uh, and only on a, on a select basis. So yes, yeah, so it's so really after better talks about. Uh, I mean, you guys have smack. You know, we have plan, brief, execute, debrief. Come up with a plan. Make sure you communicate it effectively with the team. Uh, there's a check of understanding. Everyone knows what your expectations are. Execute and stay focused. Don't get distracted. And then debrief against the plan. Uh, and that, that to me is, I probably didn't value planning. I probably, you know, I valued mission planning and I knew the importance of it. But when it came to life or business, I probably didn't value planning as much as I should have. And and through the afterburner thing, it was it was great. And my, my productivity now, having running afterburner, is mind blowing. Like the you know, the stuff that you can get done when you think this way, um, and and what it's where it's got me to now in terms of the existential crisis. It's like because uh, I work with the NRL and I work with NRL teams and work on debriefing and tuning that up and and I look at all these teams and I go, this is I'm trying to be very objective here, and it's about this is not high performance. Like I, I get that there's a perception that this is high performance. But if you looked, if you looked at what was going on in a fighter squadron every single day, and you know we didn't have a win ratio of fifty-two percent, um, yeah. And if you start to bring those practices into running a football team, and what what was really uh, cool was after Ben started working with the New York Giants, um, the first time they ever worked with the NFL, the first team they'd they'd work with, they were in the middle of the pack mid-season, and they won the Super Bowl that year. You know just. By, by practicing and debriefing properly. They were doing tape reviews. They, they were re- reflecting on performance. Uh, and they, they were like breaking up fights initially, like this, that, the brutal honesty of the, of the debrief. So, you know, so there's a lot of 
I guess, uh, practical uh, examples of that working. And, and it gets diluted a bit because now they work, you know, in the US, they work with 19. They work with just about the whole NFL. So it's a bit hard to find a point of difference when everyone's doing it. So it's like the whole rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah, yeah so it's, it's it's just fun. It's like uh, like I was talking to someone this morning about it. I'm like, in my entire life, I've never had a job where for six years running, no one has ever said anything bad about it or hmm. complained or had an issue with the value of what they learned. It's it's this surreal world where everyone just loves it. Uh, and, and that's really hard to not go and invest the rest of your life in into, into that kind of journey. spoke before about the distinction between high performance and deep performance. Um, can you elaborate, elaborate? Elaborate. Elaborate a bit more on that, please? Yeah, I think to me, deep performance is uh, the, the is enduring performance. I look at, you look at the, it's the quiet achiever. You look at the Warren Buffetts. You look at the people that kind of do the same thing for their entire life and then just become uber successful. And there's a high performance, is, high performance, there's an energy trade-off. High performance isn't sustainable. It's not. There's a, you trade emotional well-being for high performance. You trade energy for, for high performance. There's always a trade-off. Formula One, high performance. Well, it's it costs $220 million to run a Formula One team. They make $2 million and that and everything is all the investment they made in the in that year is completely redundant it's it's unsustainable for anyone except for that very small elite uh, group so so I you know and I look at, at high performance in my yeah you, you guys are have very very comfortable what high performance needs to be and when you're out on patrol when you're executing the mission you can't do that forever therefore the high performance that you exhibit there is unsustainable. So what? how do you create deep performance, which has high performance when you need it, that's not exhausting, is sustainable, and, and is, uh, is egoless. Deep performance is egoless. And, and if you, if you uh, look at a lot of the, 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 the GOTs, like Michael Jordan, never a talent. Tom Brady, never a talent. Wayne Gretzky, it, just that commitment to practice and, and doing the small things well that's deep performance. I think high performance is great because it sounds like, yeah, we're a high performing team and we're going to go and, uh, and have a session for two hours. We're going to be high performance. But it's going to be really exciting for three days. And then it's like, but what about everyone else in the company who, who doesn't want to be like that? And, and I've observed, in, in, I've watched high performers inside a company miss the key piece of information that this wonderfully introverted, highly methodical human being has this, this, this one gem. So, so deep performance is is this sustainable, deep throbbing oil tanker commitment <laughs> to transitioning all through life, and that's where that kind of when I look at deep performance for me, I, I start to see this acceptance of ego in youth. Like a deep performer is very egocentric when they're young because that's when you're that's when you're earning your trade, that's when you're getting your confidence. Yeah. You know, Coming through the, the, the myth, coming through the, the world and popping out a fighter pilot 
gives you a lot of confidence in yourself because that was fucking hard. Um, and, you, and you did it, right? So that And that lasts forever. No one will ever take that away. The, the, the training, the selection that you guys did, the, the missions that you've done, what you've seen, the emotional uh, stretch that you've experienced, no one will ever take that away from you. And that, that gives you a, a deep fabric of, of self-worth and self-confidence. And that doesn't mean to say we don't have bad days and bad months or, or our performance drops off and we feel crappy. But we kind of know that we'll get, we kind of know we'll get back there. Yeah, I've been here before. I know I'm going to get, I'll bounce back. It's okay. So I'm not going to stress about, you know, being a bit lazy and overweight at the moment or not, not, not getting into it. I'll, I'll get there. So, and, and for me, deep awareness is situational awareness. It's, it's the ability to be aware of you and your environment at any point in time. When, when it's time to lean in, when it's time to take a rest, when it's time to trust someone, when it's not, it's that Jedi-like skill like, like, like they have in the Matrix or those superheroes that can see their, all of their moves uh, ahead of actually moving and giving them great situational awareness. And we only really see situational awareness in the military, in you know, self-defense class, don't walk down a dark alley, uh, and in uh, oil and gas or anywhere that there's a high-consequence safety environment. So I've sort of been thinking, why don't we translate? Why doesn't that skill and mindset translate? into everything else you do in life because it's a really cool skill to have awareness about yourself and your impact on the environment whether other people around you are adding value or not increasing situational awareness or not like it's 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 a good skill set and right now the world has got no situational awareness it's freaking chaos Mm. yeah because no one's thinking about anything other than themselves Mm. Uh, so yeah that's a really you know I probably need to work on my elevator pitch for deep performance mate. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like it yeah well talking about transference of knowledge uh, you are sitting in front of a signboard of your podcast The Few can you talk to us about what is The Few and why you started it up oh look when I when I left just before I left the Air Force and I was grounded I worked at the Joint Warfare Centre um and it was the first time I'd ever been exposed outside of my silo. And, and I sort of started to see the bigger picture. And when I saw this bigger picture, I started to see that there's a few elements within the military that the government relies r- really heavily on to, to get the job done and have uh, you know force multiplier, submarines, you know, the uh, special forces and fighter, fighter jets. Uh, that, you know, so that it's, it's a small number of people for a disproportionate impact. And, uh, you know, Winston Churchill said, never in the f- field of human conflict of so many, oh, so much to so few. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I started to, f- I, rather than, you know, rather than think everyone is the same and we're this homogenous mass of human beings, I fundamentally believe that, look, there just are a few people that kind of, that 10%, you know, that just lean in and, and do get more done. Um, they're not the 10 most talented, 10% of most talented people. They're the 10% that just work really hard. So I thought I thought I might test that theory a bit and go out and create a podcast where we can find people who define success uh, without having to put a bikini-clad chick in a Lamborghini underneath a private jet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like Insta success. So it's about it's about finding people who live success on their terms and define success their way, not the way that winning gold lotto or just the lotto, I don't think it's called gold lotto anymore, showing my age last mm. time my mum bought a lotto ticket. Uh, but yeah, it's that, 
it's it's just that yeah it, it, it comes back to deep performance uh that the, they have the they have uh assuredness they don't have arrogance uh they have commitment but they've got the ability to be flexible they're uh determined but at the same time they know how to relax and, and have a beer and have a good time it's and and because they quietly get on with it they're not out there spruiking their wares yeah we're trying to sean and i thought well why don't we try and tell those stories a little bit mm. uh chris hewitt a previous guest on our podcast has the tagline the precision of a fighter pilot and the passion of a poet so there's no question about your precision boo what's your passion my my passion has become uh, watching the joy in someone when they surpass their own expectations um, is it, it, and, and I, I did a major project um, with Woolworths uh, doing a, a big digital transformation and I was, I was right at the, the, the top of that and built a, helped, helped them build a system to execute on it and and that was nearly five years ago now and and to still talk to those people and and for them to still be happy and really embrace the fact that they that they they use these same planning and execution cycles like we use in the military and they've never done it in their entire lives and they're all you know senior managers they're all in their 40s and 50s to see that cut through and to see them happy and working in a big organization and not it's not just me it's a good organization as well uh, that to me is my passion is to is to find more of, of that and help more people uh, believe in themselves a bit more and yeah you know, I was just lucky I guess in, in, in I, I was lucky to be bestowed with purpose and 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 a half a brain you know to, to get through it and I just love to be able to say to people look anyone can do anything mm. just think differently oh and by the way stop and give yourself time to think and then when you think think like this and <laughs> you'll get further ahead mm. well my last question is far less cerebral than Tim's we haven't asked this of a guest in a, in a little while, but what's your power song? What's that soundtrack that's going through your mind back in the day when you were flying at treetop height and buzzing the tower? Man, I, mine is a, a power rock ballad playlist. I don't, I don't have a song. I mean, I just, <laughs> you know, final countdown, you know, um, kickstart my heart, you, whatever just comes up, mate, I'm, I'm, I'm up for it. Um, I could have pretty it, much predicted those. That. <laughs> That's yeah, excellent. I mean, yeah, mate, as long as it's rock and it's, you know, yep. 80, 89, it's, uh, it's on the list. I, I thought Tim missed a trick when he was asking about your backstory and I thought he could have weaved in, you know, tell us about your highway to the danger zone. I, I would yeah. have thought that would have been a good little reference. Not sharp enough. <laughs> well, the Unforgiving 60 podcast has the Unforgiving 60 playlist on Spotify and we haven't refreshed that for a while. So I'm going to add Kickstart My Heart. I like it. It's a banger. I like it. We, yeah, all right. Highway to the... Is that what it's called? Highway to the danger zone? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Logan. Yeah. Is that what That's it's right. called? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, that's going to go on there. That's going to go on there as one of your power songs. We can insert a couple. But yeah, power songs of all of our guests on mm-hmm. the Unforgiving 60 playlist on Spotify. Yeah. Join the three other followers. <laughs> you guys, are, you're really embracing this. I didn't even think of a Spotify podcast. I wanted to, to yeah. get into that. I mean, SAS, you'd have, you'd have a lot of like romance ballads and the, the stuff that yeah. helps you sleep at night, right? Yep. <laughs> yep. That's right. There's actually some pretty cringeworthy stuff in there of, of my called my um 
Yeah, my playlist is not something I share widely. For <laughs> so, if a, if a song does come up in one of our histories, no matter how bad it might be, it's on the playlist. That's the commitment. That's the that, that's the commitment. I love it. Well, listen, Boo, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you for for sharing your reflections. It's been really fascinating to hear your story, and in particular, how that translates into to what you're doing now. Thanks, mate. Thanks, guys. I appreciate the uh, the opportunity, and uh, I look forward to having you on the few. In a couple of weeks. Awesome. With Boo. Yeah. Well, clearly had to rhyme as well, right? <laughs> Good on you, Boo. Thanks, mate. See ya. Always take care. Now to the debrief. We try to go always a little further in this podcast and greatly appreciate your input. Please let us know your feedback, the good, the bad, or the ugly. Also, if you know someone who is living a life less ordinary, we'd love to hear about them. You can get in touch at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Until next episode, keep filling your unforgiving minutes with 60 seconds worth of distance run. See you next time on the Unforgiving 60.